Before we jump into the podcast, I just got a quick message for you from The Athletic, my place of work, and the presenter of the Game Theory Podcast. Sports are back. That means you can save 40%. Don't miss exclusive in-depth coverage of this unprecedented sports season. If you sign up now, you're going to see for yourself the incredible creativity, reporting, storytelling that sets The Athletic apart. And if you go to theathletic.com slash game theory, that's G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y, you're going to get 40% off of an annual subscription. So sports are back. That means you're not going to want to miss the breaking stories on your favorite teams. Go to theathletic.com slash game theory for that 40% off of an annual subscription, and we hope to see you there. Now, let's get to Seth Partnow and I talking about the NBA's restart. Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Cassini. We're presented by The Athletic. Seth Partnow is here. We're going to break down the early part of the NBA's bubble restart today. And then in the second part of this podcast, I've got a really great interview with Skylar Mays out of LSU. Uh, Two-time academic All-American, legit potential top 40 pick in the 2020 NBA draft. Just a terrific human being that I had a really great conversation with that is going to be fun to share with you guys. But first, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, how basketball looks in the bubble. Is it different? What adjustments have we seen so far? We're going to talk about the Jonathan Isaac injury, the race for the eight seed in the Western Conference, and then Philadelphia stacking all of the crazy uh, that has been their season into a single game for some incredible reason. Seth, how you doing, man? It's good to get you on the phone. How have you enjoyed the early season bubble restart? Well, first of all, I got a bone to pick with you. You, uh, yeah, I fucked up. This is my fault. Yeah, yeah. last week you had the, the pride of Carleton College, Freddie Gillespie, on the podcast. And uh, um, as a proud graduate of, of, of the Harvard of the Midwest, I am hurt that you did not think to, to pair me with him as, uh, on that pod. So, uh, so let, let us just, let, just for the record, I am, I, I am, I am displeased about this, uh, that you chose Dave Dufour over me for that, uh, that spot. I apologize dearly. This was an egregious error on my part, but I felt like I had to rectify it this week by getting you on the show so that we could talk about the NBA. I guess that the first question that I just want to ask you before we dive into the specific teams and specific players, what has been your overall takeaway of the basketball within the bubble restart? Like we can talk about the fun stuff. We can talk about uh, the off-court stuff that's enjoyable that we've gotten to see some glimpses of from players doing vlogs and J.J. Redick having his podcasts and X, Y, and Z, right? But now that they've gotten on the court, what is the thing that you have most seen and taken away from this bubble restart? So, number one takeaway is that the level of play has, has been a fair amount higher than I was expecting. I was expecting it to be far rougher than it, than it has been. Um, I think, surprisingly, the offenses are maybe not ahead of the defenses, but at least kind of on par. And, and normally, after a long layoff, you kind of expect that not to be the case. Um, the downside is, is I think that the environment has led to the games being officiated differently, and by differently, I mean much more tightly in terms of, of touch fouls, especially off the ball. 
and that's led to kind of a, a long game times and, and kind of choppy pace of play, which I I hope kind of normalizes a little bit as uh, as the seeding games continue and into the playoffs. No, I'm with you on that. Uh, the refereeing, especially for instance in that Lakers Clippers game on opening night, it, it was an abomination. Like that was a total disaster in every single way. Uh, through three quarters, that game had the same number of fouls as. New Orleans, Utah did in the first game in the entirety of that game. Uh, it was just so stop-starty that I can't even really take anything away from that. And both of those teams took that opening game super seriously. Like, they came out and really battled in a way that I'm a little bit surprised that they did, given that neither of them really have anything to play for in this early seeding game special, right? So I love the fact that LeBron turned it on. I love the fact that Kawhi Leonard and Paul George really turned it on. The rest of the Clippers sporting cast did not, but they're dealing with a lot of disparate moving parts right now due to the absence of Lou Williams and Montrez Harrell. So before we even get into, again, the specific teams, I do want to focus in on the offensive side of the equation because Dave Dufour and I actually, on that podcast that you're so uh, egregiously upset about not being on with Freddie Gillespie, we talked about the fact that we thought that offense was going to be ahead of defense in this. And the reason I say that is because the shot lines look great uh, in the bubble. Like, I think the teams were always going to come in and shoot. These guys are have been rolling and continuing to stay warm the entire way uh, as opposed to taking, like, a real vacation just because there was so much uncertainty about when the season was going to start. They got a real ramp-up period. It, and they're ramped up to get into the playoffs within the next, like, two and a half weeks. So I'm not really surprised about the offense. I kind of expected the offense to be ahead of the defense in this one. Well, so scoring is up, but that's more mostly because pace is is up considerably, and pace is up in large part because of all the free throws uh, that are being shot. In terms of, like, offensive efficiency, um... Last yesterday kind of goosed up a little bit so that it's now a little bit higher. And, and even just comparing the 22 teams that are here to the, their their regular season play, it's maybe uh, through yesterday's play, the average single-game offensive rating is about a point higher uh, so far in the bubble as it was during the season. Um, but the I key will say there is some of the roughness that... Yeah. I, I do just want to bring up the key there is that typically during... Yeah the start of play, yes, offense is down. The fact that it's actually up right now says a lot about the way that play has been so far. Uh, but again, I, I think that this, the reasons that you normally see offense start slowly, uh, one of them is shooting, and that, that has, has not been the case. The teams have basically shot the ball as well as they did during the regular season. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in, from the standpoint of, of turnovers, turnover rate is the regular season. And that's one of the key drivers in sort of that early season malaise. But that's been counteracted in this in this instance by the fact that that like free throw rate is up, you know, thirty something I want to say thirty thirty around thirty percent from a, from regular season from from pre shutdown play. And that's really driving a lot of the extra scoring. 
um, is the fact that they're just shooting a lot more free throws. I mean, I, I wrote about that on The Athletic uh, today. Uh, just in first quarters, there's, there's, al- there's more than uh, um, al- almost five more free throw attempts per game in just the first quarter than there was during the season. Yeah, I mean, th- these games have been nightmare fuel <laughs> uh, in terms of pace of play. Um, they, they just are not good enough. Uh, and by pace of play, I don't mean possessions per game per team. I mean just sheer stop-starty Choppy. tempo choppiness. Yeah, it just has not been yeah. all that great. You mentioned in the conversation we had before, you also want to talk about the sound mix. Uh, I-, I would agree the sound mix has been... Questionable? Let's go with. Let's yeah, go with questionable. It's, it's a work in progress. It's it's work in progress. I'll say. I, I feel like yesterday it was noticeably better, where they've kind of figured out the right kind of levels for the the music and have kind of taken the echo out of it. Like the, uh, I don't want to say it sounded cheap, but it kind of sounded cheap for the first couple days. Um, yeah, and it, it sounded like it. it, it these guys are playing really hard. The, the high scores combined with kind of the, the music rattling around in the gyms gave it sort of an exhibition slash all-star feel that made it seem like no one was playing hard and no one was playing defense. And, and, I, and I, don't, I just don't think that's the case. And they've kind of rectified that a little bit in ter- just from a presentation standpoint. So... The first thing I want to talk about here, specific to players and teams, is what I think has been the biggest thing to happen so far in the bubble in terms of long-term impact on the NBA. That's Jonathan Isaac's injury. Jonathan Isaac tore his left ACL uh, during the Magic's game yesterday. And we're now in a situation where... The Magic are in a very, very strange spot because Jonathan Isaac's likely going to miss all of 2020-2021. And this was a team that I thought was somewhat likely to trade Aaron Gordon in the offseason and accumulate assets in that regard and continue down the road of building around Isaac particularly, uh, pairing him with Nikola Vucevic as a strong front court, uh, let's say, tandem that complements each other's skills at least, even if it's not necessarily like an elite level front court tandem. That made a lot of sense to me to try and even out the roster a little bit in terms of the backcourt front court mix. Now with Isaac being injured, I don't really know what this team does going forward. I think that there are a lot more questions that need to be asked about where Orlando's direction is and I have some pretty pointed comments that I'll make after I just let you kind of give your thoughts on the Isaac injury because I have some real questions about why the fuck Jonathan Isaac was playing. Yeah, um, it does put them in in just a tough spot. Just going into a situation where, as you say, he's extension eligible and not going to play next year and, you know... What do you commit, and then how do you, and then what's your plan if you decide to not do an extension next year in terms of looking towards restricted free agency when he hasn't been on the court? Um, so from a team building perspective, it's certainly a challenge. From a you know uh, 
I don't know, a medical, a strategic, what, what, what have you, it's hard not to pair that injury with thoughts about how New Orleans is handling Zion Williamson. Um, yeah. It's, you know, I don't, think, I don't think either of us know enough about what Orlando's protocol was, and I think it's probably a mistake to just sort of assume that they had a bad one because guys are at risk no matter what if they're playing basketball and you know you you can the guys are sort of always going to be at risk when they're returning to play of, of re-injury and there's kind of no way around that because you're the only way to build that capacity back up is to play basketball uh, and and so at some point you have to you have to extend yourself but but you know the risk of extending yourself sometimes it goes bad um so I don't know if there's a takeaway from that other than it, it just gives context to the degree of caution with which New Orleans is, is treating Zion. So I don't think I want to hammer the magic in regard to their handling of the protocols and the medical information and the way that they went about proceeding here. Uh, I'm sure that they did that in a manner that was strong, right? Like in a manner that made sense. Uh, I saw a comment from Steve Clifford that everyone from top on down, multiple doctors, everyone in the organization was on the same page in that Jonathan was ready to play. Where I come down on this is the Magic are not competing for anything this year. Like they're, they're just trying to develop their roster. Right. We, we can talk about the fact that they're going to make the playoffs, but that doesn't really matter to me, to be frank. The more important thing for them long term is having a healthy Jonathan Isaac and being as conservative as humanly possible in regard to handling his injury. What say you about the need to get him reps? Yeah, I, I think I, that... I recognize everything that you're saying, and I think it. I I, I, I do think it it carries weight. I just, you, you know, it's here. I'll, I'll, I'll take it I, from I, there. I, I think okay. that in a bubble, in a in the way that this season is restarting, in the way that he's moving around, like he's moving around, like not quite the same way that we saw Jonathan Isaac move around this year in the way that that dude in help defense is frenetic. He is all over the place. It was clear, at least to me, that he wasn't moving around like that. If you're not ready to start him, if you're not ready to play him until the third scrimmage even of your initial games, the risk is not worth the reward to play Jonathan Isaac in a massive bulky knee brace in a bubble restart where we don't really have enough information on what the prevalence of injury and re-injury is going to look like. And frankly, based off of you know soccer leagues that have restarted or other leagues across the you know world, I guess, we have not seen great rates of injury prevalence. We've seen a lot of soft tissue injuries. Obviously, this is a ligament tear. It's slightly different. But 
I don't feel great about how this was handled. And to be honest, I'm stunned that Jonathan Isaac's agent and that Isaac himself... I'm actually not stunned that Isaac himself wanted to play because Isaac is known as a very... Someone who wants to be out there, right? Like, he wants to be out there with his teammates. He wants to be uh, there to be there for them. I'm not stunned that he wanted to be out there. I'm stunned that the people on in his camp decided Jonathan Isaac should play in this restart when we don't have enough information about what the prevalence of injury is going to look like during a bubble restart. Right before, like you said, he's extension eligible. Jonathan Isaac was about to make $100 million this offseason. There's no way the Magic weren't going to sign this dude to an extension. If he had played a full season, he would have been an all-defense team member that averaged something like 14 points, 9 rebounds, 2 blocks, and 2 steals a night. That is ridiculous production. He was a top 15 guy for me, or top 20 guy, somewhere in that range, in terms of my rookie scale rankings, because he is a legitimate building block and centerpiece for the Orlando Magic going forward. To not play this as conservatively as possible, even if you're going about your decision-making in a way that is cogent and competent in regard to physically getting him back out on the floor, it, it really just does not make sense to me in any way. I, I think that's fair. Um, the, again, it's hard not having kind of the full visibility of the risk versus reward stuff. Um, you know, you, it's, it's easy to, to just see the fact that this injury happened, right? And, and, and conclude based on that. And that's, that's it, it, almost inevitable. Um, and, figure, and by the way, here's the, yeah. here's the other thing here. This was a 30 point game when yeah. he hurt himself. Yes. Why do you have Jonathan Isaac in in a 30-point game while he's recovering from injury? Like, I get I get that you want to get him the reps, but the reps are not as important as his long-term health. So there's an interesting kind of bigger question here, and it's hard to not have this discussion without sounding a little bit paternalistic, but sort of by, by both age and sort of the level of confidence bordering on Optimi- like over-optimism bordering on unrealistic uh, bravado that it takes to kind of become a, a high-level NBA player. Um, guys are, are, are inclined towards, yeah, I can play. I'll be fine. It'll be great. Everything will work, work awesome. Um, and so if you, ask, if you ask a player, yeah, I can play. It'll be, it'll be great. So you need to, whether it's the team, whether it's, it's representation, someone ne- almost, I don't want to say needs to, but there's an element of protecting a guy from himself because yeah. as you say this is not about like for Isaac this this was not about something he was going to gain necessarily over like the next Orlando probably has three to four weeks left in the bubble most likely versus the next three to four years right right and I get why Orlando fans would be upset about hearing that uh, I get the argument that Jonathan Isaac is his own man and has to make his own decisions. Uh, once you hit 22 years old, which I believe Jonathan Isaac is, you're old enough to make your own choices, right? But at the end of the day, Jonathan Isaac is not a medical professional. I'm sure he has the best interest of the Orlando Magic organization at heart, but players can often be 
a bit short-sighted in terms of what they want to do, especially people who are 22 years old. When I was 22 years old and I didn't have as much responsibility as Jonathan Isaac does, literally holding the weight of a franchise on his shoulders, uh, I was a fucking moron. Like, let's just call it what it is, right? And I hesitate to just want to completely call out Orlando for this. I think it's more on the Isaac side. He needs to have his agent just be like, look, dude, we need to lock you up for a hundred million dollars this off season. Even if we think it's going to be a down off season where there might not be as many extension dollars out there, we still need to make sure that you're the guy that is going to get this contract going forward. We need to lock you in. Let's even say it's $85 million. Like that's still much more life-changing money than what Jonathan Isaac has received so far. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's all fair. Um, yeah, it's, it's just a bummer. It's a huge bummer because Jonathan Isaac took a leap this year into becoming one of the absolute best defenders in the NBA. He is no longer just a guy that I wrote during his draft cycle yeah, this guy, I think, has potential to be a defensive player of the year at some point. He is elite on that end. That is why the Orlando Magic drafted him, in addition to his ability to kind of handle the ball in transition and knock down shots, potentially, and do some stuff. It's more that he had incredibly high defensive upside. He has reached that upside now. He was going to be a genuine defensive player of the year candidate in 2021. That is now on hold, and it now puts the Orlando Magic in an incredibly difficult situation. Simply put, the risk is not worth the reward of playing Jonathan Isaac, I think. it's. Um, and I don't give a fuck about him not kneeling, standing, whatever. <sighs> like, that's a that's an argument that is so pedantic and ridiculous to me that, like, I have no desire to get involved in it. But I feel for him because I don't think that this was handled correctly, unfortunately. Yeah. You know what, what almost one of the... Uh just in terms of like the 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 financial piece of it it's almost reminiscent of Isaiah Thomas yeah yeah just like um though in that case like you can at least say that those Celtics teams were plausibly playing for a little bit more um right but at the same time like that was going to be Isaiah's like one chance of getting paid so it's 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 the standpoint of, of just the timing. You just, you just you like, I don't want to sound like a meme, but you hate to see it. No, it sucks. Genuinely. No, you, you genuinely hate to see it. It sucks. Let's move on. Let's talk about the race for the eight seed in the West. A lot of teams in that mix look really good. Portland looks great, I think. San Antonio has won both of its games so far. Phoenix has won both of its games so far. Of those three teams, let's start with them before we move into the two higher profile teams, New Orleans and Memphis. I'm sorry, Sacramento, I just don't really need to talk about you in the middle of this uh, race for the eight seed. Which team has stood out most to you? Maybe not necessarily impressed you the most, but which team's performance has stood out to you the most as interesting? Um, as someone who's been kind of hugely optimistic about um, New Orleans' future, it's been grim. I don't know how much it actually speaks to their their kind of future. It just is is indicative of of how the degree to which Zion isn't there yet. Um, but beyond them, um, Spurs are fun, uh, which when was the last time you could say that? Um, I've been super impressed with how Phoenix has, from the first scrimmage, Phoenix, a team that had virtually, from a, from a, a you know, projection model standpoint, virtually a zero chance of actually making the, the postseason, how committed they've been since the first scrimmage to getting quality reps. 
yep. in this environment. Um, and I think that's that's immensely positive for uh, what is an organization that hasn't always had kind of direction recently. You know, culture is kind of a, 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 a boogeyman that gets thrown out there a lot and everyone says theirs are great and most are lying about it. Um, but I think it's a positive indicator for their culture that they can come and, like, be um, enthusiastically professional about getting after it the way they have. Yeah, I want to talk about the Spurs first because they have been interesting in the way that they've even, like, played. They're playing small in a way that we haven't seen, and part of it's because of LaMarcus Aldridge's injury. But, like, this is a team that basically refused to play Derek White and DeJounte Murray together for large swaths of this season, right? Or Lonnie Walker with either of them. Or Lonnie Walker with either of them, right? And they're starting all three of them. at all. Right. And they're playing DeMar DeRozan at the four, essentially. It's super cool. It's great. Like, I'm really enjoying uh, the way that the Spurs are playing basketball. It's wholly different from what we saw the Spurs play like throughout the course of the season. Uh, I am kind of, like, interested in thinking that they might be able to win the eight seed. Uh, They're certainly in second place right now, which is unexpected. Uh, I think that Portland is probably a little bit better than they are, if we're going to be honest with ourselves. But San Antonio looks dangerous in a way that I did not expect, but probably should have expected given who is, uh, given the organization that we're talking about. This team just doesn't know how to be anything other than wholly professional. Yeah, I mean, I, it's uh, they're very much like the Undertaker meme, right? It's like, oh, they're they're down. Oh, they're back up. Um, yep. And it's you know, how many times do we do we count? Have we counted them out? You know, over over the years. Um, and then here we are again. They're uh, they're they're right there. Um, they're they're you know, I, the, the first four days of this restart, I don't think could have gone better for them in terms of of trying to make the playoffs. And and also, frankly, for them seeing what they need to see from their their young players. And we should probably probably throw Jakob Pertl in there also as far as who's who's looked impressive um, in this sort of very, by by necessity, very modern look that that they're they're rolling out there. Yeah, I'm an enormous Pertl fan. Uh, I, I think he's legitimately someone that they should sign. I, and honestly, I think that teams should legitimately try and poach him to see if San Antonio is as intrigued by his long-term potential as I am, because he's a really, really good defensive center. He has been for two years now in San Antonio. Last year, his battles with Nikola Jokic in the playoffs were genuinely, I think, eye-opening to a lot of people in the league. I know that he doesn't put up the flashiest stats, and uh, he's not like a vertical rim runner or anything, and you know, he, he's still trying to figure out his place on the offensive side of the floor. But when you're that good and that mobile and that strong of a rim protector defensively, you have a real role in the NBA. Like if someone offered him three years, 30 million, I wouldn't bat an eye at that. Like I'd think that that's a reasonable deal because even if he ends up being a backup, it's not a great deal, but it's not like going to kill you long term. Yeah. How to value traditional centers is one of the toughest aspects of anything in the NBA right now. Yep. So on its face, it doesn't sound awful, but if he's a backup, how much better is he than pick a guy who's going to be available for, you know, biannual money? I mean, JaVale, JaVale McGee, for instance, is like basically on a minimum to the buy-in. Yeah. Like it's somewhere in that range, right? Yeah. And I think Pirtle's better than JaVale McGee, but it's not a huge difference. 
Right. Would you rather spend that extra eight million on, you know, upgrading uh, upgrading in a combo guard position or or finding a, a a shooting four who can move his feet or something like that? I think that so right. But the so teams that, that, the teams that tend to get those opportunities to sign those guys to younger or to uh, minimum level deals, those vets who are probably similar level to Jakob Pertl, those are the teams that are competing for a title. If you're a team like say. Atlanta, even though Atlanta has like centers yeah. coming out of their ass right now, if or they, Charlotte, if they hadn't for instance. For Capella. Yeah, Charlotte's a good example because Charlotte doesn't really have a long term answer at center, right? Um, yeah. It's hard for you to actually get those opportunities unless you draft one in the top yeah. 10, which isn't ideal given what we know about positional value, unless you're getting a guy that you think can be a top 15 center in the NBA, which is why I'm as high as I am on. James Wiseman and why I'm still relatively high on Onyeka Okongwu. I think both those guys have that kind of ceiling. Or would you rather try and get a guy like Jakob Pertl? You might be able to sign for 327. You might be able to hold it down long term for 25 minutes a night. And you can continue to, instead of having to use a draft pick on a James Wiseman or having to use a draft pick on an Okongwu or having to um, try and trade for an answer at center like Andre Drummond or something, you can get someone that's going to provide value in addition to getting someone that can be a starting center, like relatively cheaply, like 9 million for a starting center is good. It's just that he's like on that 25 to 35th best center in the NBA borderline. Or you could do both. Like, actually that's, that's, you know, if, if one were, if you were drafting Wiseman or, or something like that, then you sign Pirtle to three twenty-seven, three thirty. 330. Um, Wiseman's not going to be ready to be a, a, a contributing NBA player for a year, year and a half. So you have, you're getting professional competent starter minutes at that, at that position. And then by the time, you know, best, you know, reasonably best case scenario when Wiseman's ready to take over. Uh, yeah. He's a slightly ex- expensive backup, but he's an expiring. Right. So I think that the, that that's a, um, you know, you, you're not going to be in a position where you are forced to to play a guy because you got no nothing else. Um, right. I think that's a that those sort of forced to play him minutes are, I would say, a controversial topic in player development. Whether that's a whether that's a good thing, whether that's a bad thing, whether it develops bad habits, whether it's necessary to have guys you know play through mistakes, whether it's helpful, whether it just doesn't matter. Um, I think you ask ten people, you get ten different opinions on that. Um, but I think having the option to not can't be a bad thing, can it? I don't think so. And by the way, if I'm San Antonio, like I would happily give Jakob Pertl that deal, right? Like I wouldn't even think twice about it. I'd just be like, yeah, we don't know what our future is at the big position right now because Lamarcus Aldridge has one year left on his deal and um, Drew Eubanks ain't the answer. <laughs> we can just kind of say that. Uh, I don't know that Lucas Samanich is the answer either, by the way, after the rough season that he had in the G League. So... I'm intrigued by the Spurs overall. I think that they look really good. I think that they look much more modern than what we've seen of San Antonio. They're still not like out here chucking threes at a rate that is, you know, commensurate with the highest pace and most modern teams in the league, but they look good. They look really, really good right now, I think, um, on both ends of the floor. So the interesting thing is that that the having DeRozan play as a ball handling four seems like it's almost the best plausible use of him offensively because he's not a he's not a terrible passer and if he's got ball in hand then his kind of 
limit limitations as a spacer are, are kind of go away, but then you can you can still play with some dynamism, some speed, and some quickness. There's no one in the way of him really. Right. Um, and then and then that's that, that's a very kind of pleasing thing. He's almost like if you were to if you were to have an athletic Boris Diaw. It's <laughs> almost what that. You know what I mean? Like you know it, like. Uh, and the, the style of play is so completely different. But like, other than the fact that Diaw was one of the most reluctant three-point shooters I can ever remember seeing, and would kind of get in places and and, and kind of be crafty and make plays in the mid-range, and and uh, DeRozan does the same thing. He's just four feet off the floor when he's doing it. Well, the thing with DeRozan too is that he is really developed over the course. I think of the last three to four years. Like I got yelled at when I started saying this, but like DeMar DeRozan has turned into a very good passer over the course of the last few years. Uh, he had seven yeah. assists uh, against Memphis. Uh, I believe that game was yesterday. All of the days are kind of blending together to me right now. Um, he's turned into a really, really good passer uh, in the way that he can make plays from the middle of the floor. He can hit that cross corner kick out. Uh, he can hit guys in dump offs. He has like little pocket pass packages. Like he's really, really valuable uh, in that mid range area, creating for his teammates as well. And, I know that we harp on the lack of three-point shooting because that's what people do now. If you can't shoot, then you're not valuable. But if you can make passes and make plays and be a shot maker from the mid-range, that still has an intense amount of value. Uh, I would imagine he's going to opt in next year because he has like $28 million on that deal. And I was kind of formulating with... uh, an agent, not his agent, but like what was the number he would need to opt out of that deal potentially? It, like what kind of deal would he need? He'd need like 480, I think, because then you'd be talking about getting 352 in the summer of 2021. Uh, I think he'd still probably get that, so it might even need to be more than 480 on a contract. But, you know, DeRozan's going to really. In now? Yeah, if you're DeRozan, you're saying if you could lock that in yeah, now, you'd if be you interested. could lock that in now. I mean, given the level of financial uncertainty surrounding the league, that would be, for a guy who's probably got one kind of big bite at the apple left. Right. I don't know. The, 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 so figuring that stuff out is always is always interesting because just we don't – there's just no way to accurately figure what the risk preference is of a right. guy who's already made, you know, whatever amount of money he's made. Right, especially what his risk preferences are going forward. Yeah, especially for someone too that uh, hasn't really won at like an exceedingly high level uh, in an off season where the teams that have salary cap space are not particularly high level teams. Like if you're if you're the Knicks, like sure, go out and try and sign Demar Derozan and Fred VanVleet, spend thirty five million dollars or forty million dollars, whatever you have to do to get those two. I think that would actually really help their culture. Now there's not really a ton of uh, foresight in signing DeMar DeRozan when you already have R.J. Barrett, right? But I think that there are teams that you could make a case for wanting to do it. I just don't know that he wants to necessarily spend the next four years of his career uh, in places that have enough cap space to make this viable, you know? Right. I mean, that's and that's the other the other part of the calculus is is as your career is winding down, like and there's no right or wrong answer, but every every guy has has kind of sort of preferences between location, which is everything from California is nice to <laughs> close to family to I mean uh, to um, chances to win to getting the biggest bag possible 
you know, yeah. the the finite time you have left. And I don't think those are those are often pulling in different directions. And I, you know, I don't think that there's a a set of preferences along those that is in any way sort of less uh, legit than than any other. I think it's just just a matter of 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 preference for each guy, and, and kind of don't you don't really know where a guy's priorities are until they're expressed by who and when he signs for how much kind of thing. Right. Yeah. Um, let's move to Phoenix real quick. I just want to note that I've really enjoyed watching Phoenix play. I think that you're 100 percent right. They've come out with uh, an incredible amount of professionalism, uh, and they look relatively competent and dangerous in a really interesting way. Uh, DeAndre Devin Ayton Booker has been great. Yeah, I was going to say DeAndre Ayton has looked really good. Devin Booker has looked phenomenal. Uh, I think Devin remains one of the most underrated players in the NBA. I, I don't really have an issue saying that. Um, as someone who is, who is who is a kind of a recent convert, I think he's also just gotten a lot better. He's gotten – he has actualized a lot of the kind of the tools he has and is – yeah putting them in service of productive basketball as opposed to um, a cumulative basketball, shall we say. Yeah, I think he got there last year as well uh, and just was on a team that was way too young and didn't have guys around him, right? Like, I don't know that Devin has certainly gotten better, but I don't know that he's gotten like a million times better from last year. You know, we're seeing a lot of the same very patient, poised, probing uh on-ball activity from Devin Booker that we saw last year. But I think that a big thing for Devin as well is that, you know, last year he shot 33% from three. This year he's up to 36% from three. And, you know, I think that (laughs) – I don't mean to say Devin's not a good shooter. He is. We often overrate uh, Devin's shooting at the expense of the other parts of his game. Yeah. And Devin's driving in regard to – you know, his his pick and roll poise, his ability to operate in the mid-range without getting flustered uh, around bodies, his passing ability. All of that stuff is what the best parts of Devin Booker are. It's not the shooting ability, I don't think. Yeah, no, he's, he's you know, it, it's kind of weird because he came, he was a shooter as he came out, but he's a good NBA shooter. He's not, he's not an elite NBA shooter. Um, and that's, that's okay. It's just, that's just not not the perception of him at all. Um, he, he is perceived to be just this 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 kind of you know knockdown guy who's you know on the level of of your and your dames and stuff like that. And he's, and he's not that, but he is his he's got so much stuff with the ball as a as a creator, as a guy with the ability to operate from basically any area of the floor. He can, he can yeah. catch the elbow and make it a play. He can post up. He can come off screens. He can play off the ball. He can he can play in the pick and roll. Um, it's just really good. Like I, yeah. I, I don't know. That's not it's not the most uh, in depth analysis, but it's it's just the, that variety of just being able to make good basketball decisions from multiple you know situations and setups is as a primary guy. That's pretty. That's pretty impressive and pretty good. Yeah, and the other guy I want to bring up here is Mikael Bridges. Uh, he has been. Yeah, just ridiculous on defense. Like we need he, to get him. We need to get him a nickname. Yeah, he, he scored four points against Dallas, and he was one of the most impactful players on the court. Uh, the way that he made Luka Doncic work yesterday, I know that Luka dropped forty on twenty shots and uh, was his exceptional self. Like I'm not, I'm not denying that Luka was great, but late in that game. 
and throughout the entire second half, really, I mean, Bridges was miserable for him to play against. He was awesome in that game, and it's the same thing we've seen from him throughout the entire restart, and frankly, it's the same thing we've seen from him since, I would say, about December this year. Uh, so, something really clicked in. He was a good defender last year and, and was a good defender to start the year, but he really has taken a leap over the course of the last, uh, I, I would say, seven months. Yeah, and the, the big thing for him is going to be if, if the offensive game comes on, on just a little bit. Um, I don't think yeah. we're the first person to say this, but even just you know the the, the, sh- the shot going in a little bit more, but also being able to you know Danny Green as his career developed, and I think that's kind of a, a, a pretty good archetype for even though they're very different body types, but it just a, a, it's a similar archetype uh, for what Mikhail Bridges can be in terms of the elite role player. Um, you know, as he developed over his career, when he first got to San Antonio, it's like, don't, don't dribble, you're hurting the team. And he got to the point where he could take two dribbles off a close-up, draw the next defender, and he didn't have a play to make for himself, but he kind of kept the advantage by drawing extra help and making the next pass, and then so the next guy has a has a crease to attack. And, and you know, the, the peak of kind of the beautiful game Spurs was they would just do that until defense finally just crumbled and they got a layup or a wide open three and having multiple guys on the floor who can kind of just make that next play that isn't going to show up in the stat sheet having uh, bridges develop in that way a little bit more and I think he's shown some of that um, in 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 this in this period uh, but to continue to develop along those lines I think will be uh, big as far as him being uh, being you know going from a, a good role player to that sort of elite level three and D guy. Let's move to Portland real quick. Portland uh, looks as good as what I think I certainly expected and what I would imagine most people kind of thought they would be. The big thing that's different for them is not necessarily Damian Lillard, who has been for me, one of the five or six best players in the NBA this season. Uh, It is not even Yusuf Nurkic's presence, although he looks incredible uh, so far. He has been absolutely unbelievable. To me, it's getting like actual good, dangerous CJ McCollum back. Uh, He was really, really good in that game against Memphis, and he was pretty good against Boston. Uh, He's dropped 50 points in two games so far. If C.J. McCollum can be that kind of threat who's knocking down three-pointers, getting into the mid-range, making passes for his teammates, uh, that's the secondary option they need. Yusuf Nurkic uh, is incredibly important and looks phenomenal uh, on the offensive end. His defense has been pretty strong as well. Uh, He gives them just a totally different look defensively due to his strength and his power uh, and his knowledge within that drop coverage scheme. But, man, CJ, I think, is the difference for them. I think he's the, uh, he's the guy that they need consistently. So I want to touch on Nurk just, just briefly. I think he's got a little bit of the same thing that Mark Gasol has, has always had, where he's not – like you, don't, you never think of those guys as mobile, but he's, he's, he's so agile in small, in small spaces and, and yep. able to move kind of quick, like one or two steps quickly yep. in kind of in, – in kind of, all eight of the joystick directions, almost. Yeah, they're that's bears. Tremendously, it's tremendously valuable. Like he's yeah. he's very he's very light footed for a, a guy of his size, and and I think he's I think he's really good defensively. Um, yeah, I think he they move like bears, literally. Like whenever they're chasing someone, they have that quick quick first two steps where they're going to try and catch you and eat you. Uh, and Nurkic. <laughs> 
just is so good at using those quick first two steps and then going straight up and swallowing you up right around the basket. He's a beast. He's really good. I, I, just another point on Portland's defense. Um, I, I was a little bit worried um, this season. I've been I've been kind of lo- breaking down some of the the matchup data that we get, we've gotten over the season. And for players who played a reasonable number of minutes, uh, no player guarded higher usage opponent on average than did Trevor Ariza. Um, mm-hmm. So I was I was I was a little bit worried about. Uh, how that would work for for Portland, like who's going to who's going to guard the guy, um, and and it turns out the guy who's been guarding the guy for Portland so far has been Dame Lillard, which it's is great. something yeah something I, I never I, I'm not sure how well he's done he he hasn't got I don't think he's gotten speed bumped. Um, so just that has been has been pretty impressive. Yeah, Dame took on uh, Jason Tatum yesterday uh, in large swaths while average while scoring 30 points and dishing out 16 assists. Damian Lillard, I, I keep mentioning this on this podcast. This is a Damian Lillard above all podcast now. Uh, Damian Lillard, I think he's my favorite player in the NBA right now. I really do. Fair enough. Fair just enough. watching that guy fight in battle and then just, oh, yeah, dominate games while having that, like, winner's mentality, that fuck you mentality, I love it. I love so, watching that dude. Can I can I can I drop can I drop some numbers on you here? Please do. So I've I've kind of devi- defining a high percentage a high usage opponent as a guy with a 25 usage rate or higher. Uh in the regular season, um Dame guarded high usage guards about 13 and a half percent of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, through two games in in bubble, he's at almost 38%. It's incredible. He he guarded hiders, guys who are seventeen five or, or lower usage. He guarded them forty seven percent of the time during the pre shutdown, and is down to just under seventeen percent in uh, of his floor time in 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 these two games. So it, just the complete flip. Two games, tiny sample size. Celtics are a weird matchup in, anyway because of their all their kind of mid sized guys. Um, but still, that's a that's that's a pretty incredible uptick in. Kind Kind of uh, defensive usage that all of a sudden his he's become like Drew Holiday in terms of of who he's of who he's having to guard. So the last guy I want to bring up just very briefly before we move on, Gary Trent is a very real NBA player, and he is got I'll a real shot to be a starter. That. Yeah, so why? I think I had him at like forty on my board. Um, he looks awesome. He is a very, very real NBA player. He is an elite level shooter who's figured out how to move uh, away from the ball and. Uh, He's a perfect complement to to Damian Lillard, to CJ McCollum, uh, to this entire team. Yusuf Nurkic as well. Like he is going to be someone that teams should try and steal sooner rather than later. I think I, I think I know what I missed on him, uh, and it's I th- have we talked about like my thoughts on on the Celtics drafting philosophy before? No, go ahead. I'm have. intrigued. Probably well, know, at some I, point, so, but like, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so I'm I so the one thing that has has always stuck out to me as a commonality of kind of Celtics draft picks is, with the exception of R.J. Hunter, they have all had like physical robustness. Yep. Like they're all like even the small dudes are are tough. Like you, get, you know, Terriers here, or Carson Edwards. These are not like willowy guys. I mean, Tremont Waters, but that's like way late second round, and you're just you know chipping a chair there. But for the guys that they've actually invested in, yep. Um, and that puts you in a situation where like this guy is is never going to be non-competitive. He might not be good enough, 
but he's never going to be non-competitive against high-level opposition because he can just physically hang. Uh, and, you know, between the shooting and the fact that he's a solid, what do you say, 6'5"? Uh, yeah, he's about a, that. With a, yeah, with a, with, a, with a big, with a strong frame. Like, Gary Trent has that. Has that, like, okay, he can shoot. That's his offensive skill. And then he can, he can as long as he has decent enough instincts about where to be on the floor, he can physically compete. Yep. And I think that's, like... I think I was focused too much on, okay, he's never going to be able to create a shot. He's not a great defender, blah, blah, blah. It's just like, okay, he's, is he going to be a star? No. But is he going to be a guy who, you know, he comes in the game and the, 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 the eat it Joe's sign lights up above his head? No. And I think that that's been, for a team that's, you know, missing some guys uh, between, you know, Ariza and, and, and Rodney Hood, that's been pretty important. It's a good question. Where did I have Gary Trent on my big board? What, that would have been the 2018 NBA draft? I think that I had him relatively low, like around 40 or so, which, by the way, is like right around where he was picked. Yeah. But, um, no, I had him at 33. I'm okay. I'm not yeah. I'm not in a disaster yeah. scenario there. Yeah, I, 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 was not a, I was not a fan of his, though it's also possible that, that I was not a fan in the context of him being discussed at the 17th pick, and I don't know why that, that pick is in my mind. Oh, I, I, I do know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so in the, like, I think that's probably, like, early second is probably about where. Um, but, I, but I was also just kind of generally down on him because I thought he was – I'm generally sort of out on guys. Well, if he doesn't shoot, he's not going to be good, and I think I underestimated kind of that – how useful that physicality has been for you know for you know specifically for guys on the Celtics and and I didn't and I'm and I'm in retrospect mad at myself that I didn't make that connection at the time. Yeah, this podcast is a big believer in the idea of physical strength being one of the biggest uh, missed opportunities for uh, NBA teams in the NBA draft right now. Uh, Cole Zwicker and I used to talk about it. Over the last couple of years, uh, when he's been available to podcasts and shouts to Cole, uh, working hard for unnamed Team X. Yeah, we we love Cole dearly at this podcast. Uh, we we regret to inform you that we will not share his location, but uh, Cole is Cole is doing well. Um, but yeah, Cole and I used to always talk about the physical robustness, as you so eloquently put it, of a player being in undervalued aspect uh, in today's NBA draft because just being able to hang on the court is really valuable in the NBA. So, uh, yeah, Gary Trent uh, is a guy that I was a little bit questionable on at the time and has really, really uh, panned out in today's league. Uh, Let's talk about Memphis because Memphis, I think, looks kind of messy, to be honest. Uh, Their defense does not look good. They have a big game coming up, like right as this podcast will be released against New Orleans. you had a really good point that we talked about offline that I just want to give you the floor on because I think you're uh, really, really onto something with it. Yeah, I think that that they're they're, they're getting some good lessons in terms of of who is sort of 
saying it's a go forward guy is is maybe too much, but but who can hang at the level they want to be? And I'm thinking specifically of of Dylan Brooks, who's who struggled. And there's there's kind of a thing that goes on where a guy gets drafted in the second round. Most second rounders just flame out instantly. So a guy gets picked in the second round is good, is an NBA player, is probably an NBA rotation player, but because of where he came from, he gets almost an added bump on top of that because it's like, not just is this guy good, but he came from nowhere, so therefore we're going to bump him up a level. And I think that Memphis is sort of seeing some limitations of him as a starting level wing, especially a starting level wing with any sort of shot creation uh, responsibilities. I think in in kind of down the stretch of, of both of their games, He's had some. Uh, he's, he's taken some bad shots, frankly, um, and some of that is maybe they, that Jaw might not be ready for that. But some of that is sort of that same moxie that gets a person from undervalued to sticking can almost turn into a negative when you don't know when to turn it off. Yeah, uh, I kind of wrote a similar thing in their rookie scale series that he can be harmful when he's not on, but his overall presence is a positive because he gives them that like kind of fuck you attitude that he plays with that they need. Right. Like he's almost the bridge between the grit and grind Grizzlies and the pace and tempo Grizzlies. Right. Uh, He's something that I think every team needs, but in Dylan's case, it probably fits better as a sixth man uh, as opposed to being a super high leverage wing. Like he's someone that, can really play he can really play well on backcourt players on the ball but can be a bit over aggressive off the ball and loses guys and he can be a bit over aggressive with the ball in hand as a shooter and force turnovers via shot selection as opposed to via decision making which is uh turnovers that are counted right so he's a useful guy. I think that he'll play 25 to 30 minutes on very good Grizzlies teams going forward. But I think that their overall lack of emphasis on the wing position uh, in building over the course of the last couple of years is coming home a little bit so far in the bubble. And part of this is unfortunate because Justice Winslow is someone they acquired at the deadline to potentially be an answer to that. And I think that I'm intrigued to see what he looks like there. But to not emphasize shooting and to not emphasize getting a lot of different options at the wing is the one place that I think this Grizzlies front office has fucked up a little bit. I think that in general, they have done an incredible job building out this team but I just have questions going forward about uh, why they have not necessarily spent assets on what I think is the toughest thing to acquire outside of a elite level ball handler, playmaker, uh, on ball decision maker. It's a little bit harsh considering how this is only an issue because they, they have been, you know, over an 82 game season, they've been 12 games better than we thought they'd be, you know, that like if if they were just hey the Grizzlies are frisky John Morant's pretty good they finished tenth like right you know. I get that but yeah. it's more we, about their long term yeah like viability to me right. like I, I don't really care what happens with the Grizzlies this year if I'm right. like in their front office right. you know what I mean right. like I, I'd be ecstatic to make the playoffs I think that it would be great experience for guys like John Morant and Jaron Jaron Jackson 
But they're now in a position to where they have to expend very real assets to try and find what is, in my opinion, the hardest thing to find in the NBA, which is competent wing play. And they have to find a lot of them, in my opinion. Yeah. Like, this is not this is not like a one-guy answer. This is like they have to go out and get three guys to be able to play on the wing. That's, I mean, it was, it was nitty-gritty, but it was a big part of why the Winslow trade was... Uh, I would say that I panned it. Um, I, I was not a fan either. I think that you and yeah. I both were not fans of it. And the thing that I mean, the thing that that like, okay, you give up. You you probably did not um, capitalize on. I think like the combination of Jay Crowder and Solomon Hill would have had value. And I don't think the cat they capitalized on that at all. But more more importantly, like like the burning essentially burning cap space on Deion Waiters um, was like was like the part that's like uh, just that just makes it too rich because that's their okay they got they got one possible wing in Winslow where are you getting the shooter you still need the shooter and that that like that that cap space that you could have used does it does it how high up the market does it get you I don't know but does it get you someone who can who can knock down a jumper and that's kind of what what you need you're not looking for a star wing you're looking for a, a competent 37 percent three-point shooter um, yeah, that's I mean the guy, that's the guy who's going to cost you mid-level-ish money. Yep. Um, and then, but then pre-spending your your cap space on Justice Winslow and dead money just was like, oh, that's going to come back and bite you. Yeah, I did not really love it. Um, I think I was slightly higher on it than you and Danny were in our story that we wrote about it. Um, you you just like demolished Memphis, which I think was right. Uh, looking back, uh, it's certainly not a deal I would have made if I was Memphis. I tried to see their side of it, probably in large part to play devil's advocate against you because I knew that you were uh, as high on it as you were. Uh, I think that Memphis probably sees Justice Winslow as their Andre Iguodala and their guy that can play a lot of different roles, but you still need... If you're going to count on, yeah, if you're going to count on <laughs> Justice Winslow, A, he has to get on the floor, but B, then you're pigeonholing the rest of the guys that you have to acquire to play the wing. They have to be fucking elite level shooters now. Like, they, they can't just be good shooters. You can't play Ja Morant and Justice Winslow together with probably a center, because I'm not convinced yet that Jaron Jackson can handle the center position from a rebounding perspective. You can't play three non-shooters with Jaron Jackson and just assume Jaron's a good enough shooter to space the floor. Yeah. I, I'm i going to go ahead and say that I don't think Jaron Jackson can handle the center position. At least not yet. Um, I think, and from rebounding and, like, I'm... he's 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 got some problems defensively. Like, he... For as mobile as he is offensively, he he has a certain sort of uh, sliding on ice sort of feel to him defensively. And, and I think that's a... That is part and parcel of kind of the his penchant for picking up kind of ticky-tack fouls, which, yeah. you know, is harmful both because it gets him off the floor but also makes defense harder because, you know, you guy, if a guy's going to shoot at a 12-foot floater, you won on defense, except then you reach and you foul him, and now you turn it into a dunk. Right. And he, he seems like he, he commits a fair amount of those kind of, what are you doing, kind of reach-down fouls. Yeah. No, I agree with you. Uh, it's... Jaron has not been as good defensively as what I had hoped. I don't think he's even a league average defender yet. Uh, it was funny, like in my uh, rookie scale rankings, I wrote that DeAndre Ayton has surpassed Jaron Jackson defensively, and he has. Like we're we're at that point now. It's it's accurate. DeAndre, that, that, that snapped my head back when I read it, and then I was like, well, yeah, actually, that's true. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, 
Um, yeah, you know, it's it, and I don't think we we're not closing the book on Jaron Jackson. Like, how, no, 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 no. He's still got he's still got he's still got a lot of time to figure it out. The problem is, is he's got a lot to figure out. No, well, here's the other thing too. Jaron Jackson is genuinely the best. 6'11 or taller shooter for his age of all time. Like <laughs> this is not uh this is not exaggeration. I've run the numbers. He is genuinely the best shooter of his height for his age of all time. So, there is a lot of room for error for Jaron Jackson still being able to become an all-star level player, let alone uh the kind of guy who can be like the second best player on a title team, uh, which I think is his ceiling in all likelihood, uh, if he can clean up the defensive side. But there's a lot to clean up on the defensive side for me to feel extremely confident in him getting there. Yeah. Uh, let, let's move to New Orleans real quick. I don't think we're going to talk about the race for the three seed. I'll have someone else on on uh, on Thursday to talk about that. But Memphis is, or uh, New Orleans, I'm sorry, is, just a total disaster right now. And part of it, I, I just don't really want to pay too much mind to it because Zion's out. And does this really matter? You know what I mean? Like, does does this really, at the end of the day, mean anything for New Orleans if Zion isn't at full strength? I don't know. Probably not, if we're being real about it. But uh, they've come out and looked concerningly bad, I think. Yeah, they've they they've been you know, frankly, kind of a mess defensively, full stop. Now, the epicenter of a lot of that has been, unfortunately, Zion. Oh, um, yeah. But oh, he's been terrible like, like on the, defense. Yeah. It's not, I mean, yeah. I mean, the a lot of what we saw during the regular season in terms of slow and non-reactions is is still kind of there. Um, oh, the, I, I even think it's Rebounding worse. almost 50% of their misses with him on the floor. Yeah. Uh, his they like they're giving up about a point and a half per possession with him on the floor. It's like some of that is teams just knocking down jump shots, but you don't get that bad defensively over even a you know thirty minute sample um, without something bad going on. And you don't want to always ascribe it to one guy, but in this case, like you watch and you can see him just de- just being deactive, deactivated. Deactive is not a word, but deactivated uh, on defense a lot of the time. Um, but that's not their only problem. I don't think. No. I mean, they've been bad on defense the whole year. It's not just him. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, in the case of Zion, think, go ahead. No, they've got, I mean, they're just, they've, there's some just odd, like, rotation stuff that happens with them, too. Um, you know, they have too many guards, and, you know, like, Gentry had, doesn't seem like he's picked one. Like, I, I like Etuan Moore, but why is Etuan Moore playing over Josh Hart? Why is Frank Jackson seeing the court in competitive portions of games? Um, if you, you know, if you're, if you're going for this, if you're going for this eight seed, really, if you're, if you're just, you know, doing some evaluation, have some pre-planned scripting of who plays how much. Okay, fine. Um, but I don't really get the sense that that's what they're doing overall. So it's just, it's kind of like, you know, you're in basically a playoff setting. Let's see a close to a playoff rotation with the, with the caveat that you're only getting 15 minutes of Zion. So... The problems on defense, I think, are multifaceted. Uh, Derek Favors looks bad. Like we can just say that. Like he looks slow out there. Unfortunately, uh, I'm an enormous Derek Favors fan, and I thought that he's looked really bad those first two games. Uh, Brandon Ingram is a bit unresponsive on defense uh, in help in help settings. He's pretty good on the ball whenever he like really wants to sit down and deal with guys, but he's not great there uh, in terms of overall defensive engagement levels, let's call them. Uh, Drew Holiday and Lonzo, I think, are great. 
defensively. Drew's a monster on the ball. Alonzo's a monster off the ball. Like, I'm not worried about that. Josh Hart plays hard, defense, plays hard defensively. Um, it really is Zion to me. Like, Zion is really bad on defense. And I, I'm not sure totally what to make of that yet. He was someone that was really good on defense at Duke. He was literally, I think, a semifinalist for a National Defensive Player of the Year. And he looks like the gears are turning in his brain way too quickly. Or uh, the gears are turning and he still doesn't know how to react to them uh, in terms of where he needs to be. Part of what his role was at Duke was playing this like rover role. And because the court is so condensed and he's so athletic, he was able to do it and just recover everywhere all over the court. Frankly, he was also in better shape at Duke. We can say that as well. I think that an off season is going to do Zion Williamson a whole world of good, but yeah, he's really bad defensively. And and I don't know totally what to make of it in terms of his long-term outlook on that end, because it does come as a surprise to me, given what we saw at Duke and, uh, given his overall lack of fitness level right now. Like, I just think it's really hard to know. Yeah, I think I think that the without the doing any evaluation of what it looks like without the shot out of a cannon thing is, is I don't know. Like, if he's kind of, uh, if it's not, it's not unusual for, for, for a young guy to be, you know, a little bit lost on where he's looking. But as you said, that recovery ability that, that he, we know he has when he's at, at, at full strength. Yep. Without that, you don't really know what you have. Like for the, for the amount they ask him to do offensively, he might just top out as an okay defender who occasionally makes a spectacular play. Uh, you know, that maybe the um, completely different from a positional standpoint, but like from a slightly post-prime Dwayne Wade kind of thing mm-hmm. where he's conserving a fair amount, but occasionally, oh my God, what do you do? Um, and, 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 and that's enough. Right. Um, uh, so maybe that's that, but, and even that is, is maybe good enough given his ability to, you know, create pressure on the rim offensively. Um, but without that ability to have, make those like big time recovery plays and, you know, the, he's not even putting himself in the position to make those plays. Um, it's just, it's, it's impossible to evaluate what that looks like. And whether it's it's pure conditioning, whether it's just be, being lost scheme wise, whether it's um, still kind of working his way back from, you know, not really having a a, a ramp up regimen at any point post the the, the preseason this year. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I do think we just we need to see him with like a clean run at it to yeah. really make firm firm comments about what his defensive ceiling is beyond saying it's been really bad in the, in the, in the bubble so far. Well, and, and frankly, here's the other thing, too. Um, he, he's so bad defensively that, like, whenever people were freaking out, like, why is Zion not playing? Why is Zion not playing? Uh, at the end of that game uh, against, who did they play first? Utah. I was sitting there just like, no, he's been bad enough defensively to where they should not have him on the court defensively right now, like, in a tight game. Like, there's no way that they can trust him on that end of I mean, the court. I, I don't. I don't think it matters. I don't think there's the option to play him in in in, in, a, in a in late in the game anyway, based on on kind of the restrictions he's under. Um, I, again, I wrote about this today at, at the athletic. But I, I um, guess I guess my point is that yeah. like we didn't know that at the time. Like frankly, we thought that he wasn't under restrictions because they had said ahead of time that he wasn't under restrictions to ESPN reporters. So it was weird when that was happening. And the team gave false information to the media. Stunning, right? Um, but, like, I, I was sitting there just going, yeah, I mean, 
dude, dude can't play on defense right now. <laughs> I mean, I, I get why he's not closing more even than uh, the the treating him with kid glove stuff. Like, I get it. He's he's not there defensively, and I, I think that do you have. Before we even go on to, like, the other stuff, because I think that, like, Jackson Hayes is interesting and worth talking about really quickly. Um, why do you think it's going wrong for Zion Williamson in such a substantial way defensively right now? I mean, I just, again, I think that, that uh, the the complexity of NBA defense is not something that, it, it's something that kind of has to be seen to be believed. I mean, there's a reason that teams basically spend all preseason just working on, like, the rotations, Yep. Um, because there's some there's some rotations that are that are pretty complex complex from a from a you know a, a you and I just you know breaking down a basketball standpoint that are the basis of any like NBA defense like the 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 dance that five players have to do to guard a single angle, like a simple angle pick and roll um, right. is just so much higher than anything that you've likely seen at a college level. Right. So that. You know he's behind the eight ball on that. He's a guy who is I'm gonna, you you probably know better than me kind of the the level of kind of technical coaching he has received kind of coming up. Um, and I, I'm and I'm guessing it's it's fairly limited since he was yeah um, it's, you know, it's something of a late who wasn't exposed to a lot of the like the Team USA stuff early in early in his development. Is that fair? He he's been with Team USA um, for a long time, but. He's not a guy that, like, has crazy defensive um, teaching in his past. Like, uh, even at Duke, like, people bring up, oh, they have, like, a top 10 defense at Duke and Mike Krzyzewski and all this stuff. I fucking hate the defense that Duke runs. Like, I hate it. (laughs) It drives me nuts. Like, uh, I am not surprised that it would take him an adjustment period, put it that way, on defense. Yeah, and and then and you add that the fact that he's he's physically compromised and and there you go. I mean, so and on top of which, rookies are bad at defense because rookies are bad at defense. So right, it's it's. I don't think it's in retrospect. It's it's it shouldn't be surprising that he has been below average. It's just the degree of the below average is 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 surprising. Yeah, and it's problematic for him long term. Um, Last, I, again, I don't. I don't. I think again, we we need to see it with when he's when he's closer to right. To right, say it's long term problematic. I get, I get your point. It's not a great sign, but like let's let, you know let we let's not bury him. No, <laughs> I'm, I'm with you. Catch. Yeah, I'm a hundred percent with you on that. Uh, I'm not. I don't want to bury him at all on the defensive end. Um, the last thing I want to talk about with the Pelicans, Jackson Hayes looks interesting, man. He doesn't know where he needs to be on offense. Like, when he's out there with J.J. Redick, you see J.J. Redick's being like, dude, you need to be here, not here, like, regularly. But, man, uh, the athleticism is real. Uh, His agility is real. He is going to be a really, really fun player, I think, for the Pelicans. And he's going to be an intriguing fit next to Zion, I think, uh, if either of them can figure out how to shoot. Yeah, uh, Jackson Jackson was a guy who I was – skeptical on coming into last year's draft and he's like a he was a three-minute summer league guy he's like oh okay just again you don't going from ncaa play to nba play you know the the difference between good athlete and great athlete at the new level you can't always tell on film and and or you basically you can almost never tell (laughs) on film and then you you watch him for three minutes in the summer league setting it's like oh no no he's he's got that so the the physical side is there and like you say it's just the learning where to be and how to harness that uh that 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 burst 
that that makes him a that makes him a potentially very interesting kind of if nothing else a very interesting kind of energy big type. Yeah, no doubt. And his overall uh, impact in transition is going to be really interesting with the Pelicans as well, given how much Alvin Gentry likes to run. Uh, The fact that Alvin likes to run that much is going to be a really good fit with Jackson Hayes, I think, Uh, especially with guys like Lonzo Ball, Drew Holiday, um, Zion certainly as well, who likes to get up and down the court. So uh, Jackson Hayes, the signs have been really good. Uh, The last thing I want to talk about here before we get out of here and we move on to that interview with Skylar Mays. Man, the Philadelphia 76ers packed all sorts of crazy into that first game uh, in a way that was just so ridiculous. Like, I I just want to read a tweet from Mike Levin, good friend of the program here. Mike is the best. Uh, The 76ers in a single game had poor spacing, no communication on defense, good players suddenly losing motor function, sloppy turnovers, visible friction, random mediocre player absolutely going off against them, blowing a big lead, and Joel Embiid getting sent to the locker room. Like, that is the epitome of the 76ers season uh, in a single game, and it is hilarious to me that it happened in the first game of Bubble Restart. Yeah, I'm not sure there's much to add to that. Um, it's, uh, you know, as the <laughs> as the 76ers turn uh, has, has entered, entered a new season. It's just genuinely hilarious to me. It is legitimately hysterical to me that this team just continues to be as ridiculous as uh, as humanly possible, really. Like, there's just nothing else to say about it. Like, th- this team is just so totally absurd that it is uh, – it's hard for me to fathom on a nightly basis when I watch them. I mean, we knew they – again, we, we it seems like every, every discussion of the 76ers is talking about – we knew they'd be weird, but – and I think we knew they'd be weird, but wow <laughs> – how weird. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, and it's just, like you say, just like the, the, the constancy of it and the fact that, like, you know, they, they packed so much into one game. It's, it's, a, it's a densely plotted novel every time. Yeah, it's really just totally ridiculous and hilarious. Um, do we have any faith in them making a run toward the Eastern Conference Finals? I mean, no, but you say that, and then they're ridiculous enough that they, <laughs> then here, here, there they go. So, um I don't know. I, as someone who is who is who liked them a great deal in preseason and uh, has possibly been a little too stubborn to stick with them, um, I feel like I kind of still need to go down with the ship and say that they have, you know, they of of the the sort of questionable teams, they still have the the most best player upside, and if they can actually get full games of Joel Embiid being that, um, they still remain dangerous. Um, whether they're anything more than dangerous and can scare you on a given night. At this point, you know, at this point, the probably not answer takes up a bigger and bigger proportion of of their their uh, distribution. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Um, is there anything else you want to get off your chest before I let you go, Seth? Um, I, I think I think we've covered everything plausible and possible. The funny thing is that we haven't because I wanted to run down this big race for the three seed in the West. And I'm going to have to move that to the Thursday podcast. Now we didn't talk about Toronto looking great so far. Uh, we didn't talk about Nick nurse. Not okay. I just like, okay. Coaches. How have you not voted Nick nurse coach of the year? Seriously. He like, he, what's the football expressions? Like he can take, he can take yours and beat his, or he can take his and beat yours. 
like Nick Nurse's roster turned over twice last year. He dealt with a guy, you know, being in and out of the lineup. They went and won the championship. This year, they lose the second or third best player in the game, and they're still right there as the second best team in the East. And you know, beating people that that they they, in theory, from a talent standpoint, have no business beating on a nightly basis. And you know, and they do it in the most like uh, versatile style of any team in the league. Get this man some respect, please, and thank you. I'll take my answer off the air. I'm with you. We also didn't even talk about the Bucks uh, apparently uh, being frauds, according to the internet last night. That was that was a that was a take that was floating around last night, which is ridiculous. But I, I think that it's best that we leave it there, right, Seth? Yeah, I think that's. I, I think. I think. I think. I think I've said too much already. <laughs> oh man! Uh, thank you, Seth Partnow. Do you want to give us anything that people should read uh, from you over at the Athletic? Uh, we we talked about a, f- a few aspects of today. My Monday kind of uh, league look around. We're calling my my news and notes column where we talked about the fouls, talked about Zion, talked about defense overall, and I dropped the list of. Uh, of analytic staffers uh, around the NBA, uh, which I've been informed that uh, that I've actually that is already out of date based on people coming and going uh, in, <laughs> in the few days since I completed it. So uh, we'll look to update that, but uh, look for, look at that list at uh, in my column at the Athletic. I am excited to try and reach out to a bunch of these analytics staffers across the league that I might not know. Uh, Because I looked at your list and there are certainly a lot of analytics staffers that I don't know, I realized, uh, thinking that I knew quite a few of them, actually. So, Seth, thank you for uh, coming on. And we'll be back here momentarily with Skylar Mace, a point guard, shooting guard, hybrid type out of LSU. All right, and we're back here on the Game Theory Podcast with Skylar Mays. Skylar Mays is a two-time All-SEC guard out of LSU, uh, about six foot four. kind of plays all over the court. He plays both guard positions. He does kind of everything exceptionally well, in my opinion, and is going to really fall into a role in the NBA relatively easily due to the versatility of his skill set. In addition to that, he's a four-year starter who came into play from day one. He's a two-time first-team academic All-American, too, and we'll dive into uh, just his overall level of intelligence later on in the show as well. But, Skyler, it's good to have you on the show. How you doing, man? I'm doing well, Sam. I appreciate you having me. So, for people, every time I have a player on this podcast, obviously this is a very real NBA audience, and the fact that uh, you've played a hundred times on TV over the course of the last four years, maybe they haven't seen you play quite as much as uh, the typical college basketball fan. So, uh, I open every one of these interviews by asking the player, can you, in your own words, kind of explain and break down your own game? Yeah, like you know, like you just said, I, um, you know, I, I was blessed to play at a pre- prestigious university in LSU, which is also in my hometown, and you know, I'm just blessed to be in this position. But as far as my game, I like to think of myself as a jack of all trades. You know, I, you know, I appreciate all aspects of the game, so I try to be impactful for a team in all aspects, and I just try to make winning plays, whether that comes to getting my teammates open shots or or scoring or 
getting a big rebound, just trying to be a winner uh, every possession. Yeah, and I think that you embody a lot of those traits on the court as well. I mean, it's not even just in your mind that that's happening. That absolutely bears itself out on tape. And, you know, something that a lot of NBA teams are looking for right now are these guards that can play both on and off ball. You know, if you watch the games last night, we're recording this on Friday for a Monday release. You know, obviously, Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, LeBron James, these guys are all handling the ball a ton. Uh, despite the fact that they're six foot seven, six foot eight, in Paul George's case, six foot ten wings, having guys around them that can make plays with the ball in hand, in addition to making plays uh, directly off the catch, is absolutely essential to fitting in today's NBA next to a superstar level wing. Those are kind of skills that I feel like you embody. Is that something that you've tried to kind of incorporate into your game over the years, kind of knowing that uh, that's a really great way to make a living at the next level? Yeah, 100%. You know, coming out of high school, I was uh, pretty much strictly a point guard, so I didn't really know how to play off the ball. But, you know, as I've played with uh, high-level guards at LSU, and, um, you know, I've learned to be more versatile. Uh, I think it's really uh, helped me become more valuable to teams as somebody that can play both guard spots and, uh, you know, can just compete on both ends and bring versatility on both ends. Yeah, and the big area where you've improved there uh, over the course of your career is obviously in terms of your shooting consistency. Uh, You went from being... I would say kind of hit or miss over the course of your first three years. It wasn't that you were a bad shooter. You were just kind of, I'd almost say streaky because you had these games where it seemed like you couldn't miss. And then you had these games where the shot just didn't quite fall Uh, over the course of your first three years at LSU were you were a 33% three point shooter, despite being an 84% free throw shooter and consistently well in the eighties is a free throw shooter. This year, that number spiked up to 39%. And I feel like it's honestly uh, not a situation where it's small sample. I think it is actually representative of your shooting ability. How have you gone about improving your shooting, just mechanical consistency over the years? Yeah, you know, I definitely had to make some tweaks uh, to my to my jumper uh, going into my senior year to help improve my efficiency. But uh, I think it more so happened from me having an opportunity to you know, kind of expand my game a little bit and, and have more opportunities to prove that I'm, I'm really good at getting to the rim. And uh, I think it affected other teams' uh, scattering reports, and I think guys wanted to keep me out of the lane. So it opened up a lot more open shots for me, and I was able to get a lot more, you know, great looks, and I was just able to knock them down and uh, have that confidence to knock a lot of big shots down. Yeah, and I think that you kind of bring up another point within there. You're a guy who's consistently gotten better over the course of your career. Despite the fact that you came into LSU as a four-year starter, you know, you were, I don't remember if you started, like, literally your first game at LSU, but by the end of the year, you were, and certainly in SEC play, you were starting all of your games. And how have you kind of gone about just adding little things to your game? Because you're not the biggest guy, you're not the most athletic guy necessarily, but you just kind of figure out a way to make things happen on the court, either due to your skill or to your feel for the game or your reactivity. Yeah, um, well, I I think I'm just a a product of hard, hard work and and discipline and and putting a lot of time in it. And, you know, I I truly have, you know, a lot of love for the game and I just want to be as good as I can be. And that's what drives me to work so hard. And, you know, it's not a secret, you know, the the more time you're in in the gym working on your game, the better you get. And, you know, I I try to take that to the maximum every day. And uh, I think it's shown by my progress year by year. 
Where do you think the biggest place you've made improvement is over the course of your four years? Um, I think I've just gotten way more competitive as years have gone on. Uh, I don't know if that's something that most people would say, but I think that's helped. You know, having that competitiveness every game, I think it's made me want to, you know, take every take every possession seriously and, and try to impact the game every time I step on the court. And, uh, you know, aside from how hard I work, uh, you know, that that's the thing that makes me a better player uh, year by year. So one of the things that stands out, I kind of alluded to it a minute ago, is your feel for the game. You just always seem to be in the right spot uh, consistently, possession by possession on both offense and defense. It's just every single time you are in the right spot. Uh, if it's moving off the ball, just finding uh, a little cutting lane or finding a way to space for someone like a Javante Smart to drive, you just always know where to be. And I'm, with these guys like you that have that high-level feel for the game, I'm always so interested to kind of learn more about, is it that you just do so much prep going into games that you know how the defense is going to play you? Uh, do you just do it based off of feel and instinct and reactivity within games? Or is it kind of a combination of both? Yeah, I'd say it's a combination of both. I, I would say, you know, working on my game and um, watching a lot of film, um, I put that both in the, I put both of those things in the category of preparation. And, uh, you know, as you prepare more for games and as you know, more about what to look for in film uh the game slows down a lot more for you so i think i'm able to think a lot quicker uh to make up for maybe what people may see as uh um not elite level athleticism so having that advantage has definitely helped me uh be productive yeah and one place that that stands out just that reactivity and that alertness is on defense i mean you've consistently been among the SEC's leaders in steals and uh, just in getting deflections here and there. How do you go about, you know, kind of creating that havoc on defense that you do? Because opposing teams just basically always have to be aware of your presence, even if you're not necessarily the guy that's guarding the ball. Yeah, you know, the number one thing is being competitive and, um, you know, watching watching people like uh, Good Jordan, who everybody wants to be, and talking about how he's somebody that you had to worry about on both ends of the court. That's something that kind of really drove me to want to be a, a, a defensive menace, and I think I'm getting better at that. I think I have a ways to go, but, you know, as I get better as a player, it's only going to get better because, uh, you know, I really want to – impact the game at all times on both sides of the ball. So I've kind of brought up how I think you are an incredibly well-rounded player, but there are always still places that guys like you have to improve, right? So what are kind of some of the things that you're working through right now to improve your game as you get ready to move to that next level? Yeah, you know, I know, I know I'm never going to be a, um, a LeBron James as far as athleticism goes, but, I, you know, I definitely want to improve my athleticism, and um, I think I'm more athletic than people give me credit for, but mm -hmm. I still have ways to go with that, um, improving my lateral speed and things like that, and that's only going to make me a better defensive player. And, you know, just keep on working on my shot. Like You know, like you said, um, it wasn't a false it wasn't a false sample uh, the way I shot it this year, but, you know, I want to be a guy that's a, a real threat that teams can run actions for um, off the ball and on the ball. So, you know, uh, like I said, just continue trying to be a jack of all trades and just keep on trying to learn a lot more about the game because there's so as the game evolves there's so much more to learn and I just want to stay on 
on top of things. Yeah, the guy who really stands out for me when I watch you as kind of a point of comparison is George Hill. Uh, George obviously went to a smaller school at IUPUI coming out uh, and got drafted late in the first round by the San Antonio Spurs. But similar guy, six foot three, six foot four. Uh, really knew where to be defensively, really impactful on that end because of that, uh, not even necessarily due to physical tools, can handle both the one and the two position, uh, can play next to star level players or can run the show himself. Is that kind of someone that you've noted as someone you can take stock of and try to take little tricks of the trade? And you know, if not George, who are some of the other guys that you've kind of taken little pieces of as you've gone along this journey in your career yeah absolutely you know George Hill's a great comparison uh, uh, you know a guy who's played in played in the finals before somewhere that I hope to play in my NBA career um who's what 12 to 14 years in the league I don't know how long he's been in the league but he's been in there a while so yep. um uh you know definitely a great comparison you know you know like I said before we uh off the air um Malcolm Brogdon's a guy that I've heard about um you know, guys I like to watch are Malcolm, uh, Corey Joseph, Spencer Dinwiddie, guys like that. It might be mm-hmm. a little bit bigger than me, but, you know, I think we have similar uh, similar type games. So, um, you know, those are guys I try to really lock in on the film on and, and try to take little tidbits from. No, I think those are really, really great names for you to be watching because, like you said, those guys don't have the most traditional athleticism, but they have kind of what I like to refer to as functional athleticism. They know how to use their athleticism to get to their spots on the court, and that's kind of what you do, and I think that's really, really uh, intuitive, and it's not surprising that uh, someone like you would be as intelligent and intuitive about improving your game given the fact that you are a two-time first-team all Uh, academic All-American. You are a kid from Baton Rouge, like you said uh, at the top, seven brothers and sisters, and you come from a family of doctors. What was it like growing up uh, in a family where your dad is uh, an area doctor in Baton Rouge, your mom is a registered nurse, uh, you have brothers and sisters that have gone on to medical school and nursing school. Uh, What is it like growing up in that environment? Oh, I love it. I love being a part of a big family. You know, I'm the third oldest, so I'm one of the I'm one of the OGs in the in the family. Uh, you know, I, my my little sisters and brothers really look up to me, and I take pride in that. And that that's another thing that drives me to try to be the best I can be every day. And uh, you know, just being a part of a well known family in my in my uh, community, and um, you know how we're respected uh, in Baton Rouge, it means a lot to to me and. Um, you know, we we just try to lean on each other heavily and and uh, really love uh, things like cookouts and things like that and eating down here. You know how that is in Louisiana. So <laughs> you know, we just we just really enjoy each other and and family's a big part of my life. So you decided to major in a similar boat. You are a kinesiology major. I believe that you have a specialty in the science of human movement. In addition yes, to that, sir. as well. Yes, sir. What made you yeah. decide to go down that road? Yeah, well, you know, like like you alluded to, my my dad's a doctor, my mom's a nurse, and you know they work together at a, a private practice out here in Baton Rouge. So being able to go with my dad when he would do rounds at the hospital, that was something that was really cool to me. And just seeing how he loved helping people, which is something that he really stressed to me and my siblings growing up, and you know that really registered with me. So 
Um, being able to do it uh, as a physician is is a really cool idea. Obviously, I've got you know basketball to the forefront right now, but uh, you know I want to put my degree to use at some point. And um, yeah, you know, um, just come from a, a a real strong medical background, and it, it's kind of all I know. So it, it was only right for me to kind of follow that path. Do you see medical school in your future at some point? Yeah, hopefully way down the road. Yeah, you know, uh, you know hopefully I'm in the league a long, long time, and uh, you know, win a lot of championships and help help a, help a really good organization. Um, but you know, I definitely want to. I didn't I didn't go through all I went through in college on the academic side for nothing. So well, yeah. That's another thing that I've read is that when you're not on the court, apparently you're just like constantly studying and constantly trying to learn as much. Is it a case of just intellectual curiosity? Is it a case of kind of discipline that you feel like you have to do it? Just, you know, what makes you as studious as you are? Because I feel like it's a it's a mentality as much as as much as anything else. Yeah, I'd say I'd say it's a mixture of both. You know, I'm I'm really interested in medicine and being able to have intelligent conversations with my parents about uh, what's going on, how how things are swaying uh, as far as medicine. You know, moving forward, uh, it's really intriguing to me. And you know, the discipline side of it is just want to be the best I can be. You know, just like on the court. And uh, you know, if I if I can get A's in in classes, uh, you know, and uh, then I want to do that. And uh, you know, I just really want to. Uh, be someone who inspires and, and shows that you can you can do it on both sides because I don't see myself as any more special than the next guy. It's it's just a matter of wanting to and and working hard. Off the air, you mentioned to me that Garrett Temple is one of the guys that you've kind of developed a little bit of a relationship with and someone that uh, you look up to. Uh, you know, another guy at LSU that has played a decade in the NBA and has really gotten the absolute most out of his athleticism due to hard work. And another guy that has kind of a sterling reputation around the league. Uh, what is that relationship like with Garrett, and how has that kind of prepared you to move on to the next level as you go on this journey? Garrett's an unbelievable person who, you know, comes from an unbelievable family. Uh, you know, I lean on him heavily with uh, NBA stuff, uh, just asking him questions, trying to pick his brain all the time. He's another example of, a, you know, He's getting. I think he's getting ready for the LSAT. Uh, I know he's in the bubble right now, but uh, you know he's another example that you can do both. And uh, you know, just an unbelievable guy who who I have a really strong relationship. And you know, he's he's done so much for me. And uh, you know, every time I every time I talk to him, I thank him so much because uh, you know that's a guy who's genuine and really cares for for uh, what's best for me. And uh, it's great to have somebody like that with the reputation he has in the league you know, just in my corner. So, uh, you know, I, I could go for an, I can go on for an hour about Garrett. Uh, it's a guy who uh, I really look up to. Yeah, you kind of nailed it. I mean, his reputation among players in the league uh, is just absolutely outstanding. And I think that uh, it, it does not surprise me that he's uh, taken someone like you under his wing and has been willing to help out as much as he can. Uh, we kind of have talked about all of the things that, People would say our work, right? Basketball, uh, certainly studies, you know, doing as much as you can to uh, maintain that 4.0 GPA that you have. Uh, what are some of the things that you do when you're trying to, you know, relax and get away off the court? Yeah, you know, I'm a big movie guy, so uh, that's 
you know, I just kind of hang out and chill. It's 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 beautiful out here in uh, Baton Rouge, nice and sunny. So I've been laying out a little bit more, trying to get a little darker. Uh, but yeah, I just like to hang out and uh, hang out with friends, hang out with my old teammates, and um, I can't do that right now. But hang out and uh, just watch movies, just just lay low. So I'm glad that you brought that up, and we'll now close the interview with the three questions I've been asking every player uh, that has come on. So uh, typically this is the second question, but you led directly into it. Uh, Certainly the quarantine has given people a lot of time to catch up on TV and movies. Uh, What are some of the things that you have caught up on over the course of these last four months? As far as movies? Movies, TV, whatever you've been watching. Well, I've been watching a lot more NBA than I than I did during the season because during the season I kind of like to focus more on my opponents and, and watching yeah. other teams play. But, um, you know, with the NBA revving back up, I've definitely been more locked in on that. Movies, I've been trying to – I just watched The Wrong Missy. That's a Netflix original. Yeah. Uh, with David Spade, I watched – Inside Man with Denzel Washington, which was a good one. And um, I just rewatched my favorite movie, which is Coming to America. That's a classic with Eddie Murphy and uh, Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall. So that, that's my big three, I guess, right now. You picked some. You picked some good ones there yeah. because uh, I recently just watched Inside Man as well. I've, I'm the same way you are. I think I've. <clears throat> I think I've watched like. 179 movies or something this year wow. already. Yeah. Well, like I. So you're Italian. <laughs> I I am indeed. Uh, yeah, I'm tallying uh, because I used to work uh, in the entertainment industry a little bit whenever I was coming up. So I uh, tend to tend to keep track of all the stuff that comes out. And yeah, Inside Man is one that I just went back and watched, and it was pretty good. It, it, Denzel's just ridiculous in that movie. It's great. Um, yeah, he did a great job. Basically, all of the Denzel movies uh, from that era, like the mid to mid two thousands to like even mid twenty tens, all of those action movies are just amazing. No doubt, no doubt. Well, you're you know you're way ahead of me in one thing. I guess I guess I spend a little bit more time on the court than you do, so I got an excuse. Yeah, you spend more time on the court and studying. You have uh, you, you have know. a lot less time on your hands than I do. <laughs> right. Uh, the second, the typical first question I ask, it'll be the second question here, is who's the best guy that you played in your four years at LSU, the best player that you faced off against? Ooh, the guy that I'll, that I'll never forget playing against, he's, he's probably, well, definitely going to catch a guard, Matt Farrell at Notre Dame. We played them. We had beaten Michigan in Maui my sophomore year, and then we had Notre Dame the day after. And the way he just controlled the face of that game, they beat us by like 40. The way he controlled that game, it was unbelievable. Now, probably the best prospect I've ever played was, I don't know, man. I played in the SEC. You could say De'Aaron Fox my freshman year. Uh, I don't know. I've seen some really good ones. Who's the best guy you played this year? This year, the best prospect was Anthony Edwards. But the guy who um, I really loved was, hmm, I should love to, Mason Jones. He He played really well against us both games. Yeah, Mason has kind of a strange, herky-jerky game. I'm going to be interested to see if that can translate. 
to the next level. Yeah. I'm not totally convinced, but we'll see. I'm glad that you showed him some love, though. Uh, Matt Farrell is a great pick. He's in the G League right now. I miss watching Matt Farrell. He was a fun, like, control the pace of the game point guard, like you said. Yeah, they had a really good team that year. I thought they had a Final Four team that year. They had Bonzi Colson, all those guys. They just got hit with the injury bug. So, uh, But, man, Matt, Matt was big time that game. So the last question here, obviously you're a guy who tends to be pretty responsible, uh, come from a family where I would imagine that responsibility is a virtue, but you're about to get a very real NBA contract. What is the first thing that you would like to buy with the money that you get from your NBA contract? I want to help my sisters with their student loans. That's the number one thing on my list. That is an exceptional answer. Uh, Elijah Hughes, uh, the last guest on this podcast, gave a very similar answer in terms of helping out his family. But come on, man, there's got to be something fun that you want to buy, too. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I love jewelry, so I'll probably end up buying something, probably like a, uh, I don't know, a chain or something, maybe something in memory of my, you know, my friend who passed away, uh, Wade Sims, who passed away my junior mm. year, was on our team. Um, you know, I, I've got some thoughts in mind for that, but I kind of, I want to be responsible, you know? I love that. That is staying very in character, Skylar. Thank you for coming on the podcast, man. This has been the Game Theory Podcast. Please remember, rate, review, subscribe, do everything you can to support the show. We'll be back later this week with more, but until next time, we'll talk soon. Bye. Bye.